I'm Colter DeVries with RanchInvestor.com. We give you the tools to build and manage wealth through ranch ownership. I'm Andy Ron, accredited rural appraiser and creator of Montana Land Source, the ultimate resource for the Montana land market. Montana Land Source is the only place where you can find all large acreage listings on the market in Montana today, as well as recent sales. We provide maps, market statistics, and analysis, and Montana land news and events. Find us at mtlandsource.com. Hi, I'm Denver Gilbert, licensed broker and owner of Clark & Associates Land Brokers. We've been helping buyers and sellers of farm and ranch properties in six states since 2005. We've been averaging a little over $100 million in ranch real estate sales annually. Welcome to the Ranch Investor Podcast. This is brought to you by Land Trust. Did you know sportsmen spend over $5 billion annually in hunter and angler access fees? Do you know that, Andy? I do now. Land Trust is a platform that connects sportsmen with farmers and ranchers like you who have untapped profits just by providing access to their land. Go to landtrust.com forward slash ranch investor to see how much you might add to your bottom line. That's an enterprise, and uh, boy, do we have some enterprises to talk about today, Andy. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's exciting. We're, we're probably going to make this a two-part episode. So listeners, uh, this is going to be part one of two. And the reason is, is one, because we have a live audience here. We got Michael, Michael Ray. Wave to YouTube, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Michael introduced me to Roger and Betsy Inderlin. And just in our last conversation over lunch here an hour ago, Andy and I have discovered that they are the summation of everything we've been discussing for two seasons. They implement low-stress livestock handling. They have worked with interns, the new agrarian program through the Kivera Coalition. I encourage anyone to Google KiveraCoalition.org. Check that new agrarian program out. Uh, also, you're going to want to Google Ingerland Angus out of Big Timber, Montana. They are featured everywhere. Their ranch is in the carbon program with Western Sustainability Exchange. There's a feature of them on that website. When we had a guest on, Chris Mayhews from Western Sustainability Exchange, talking about carbon marketing. Um, and we want to touch on one thing we haven't touched on in our series yet is the animal the animal piece of the ranch investment. And being a two-part episode, we're going to touch on a lot because, like I said, Betsy and Roger, they're just doing it all. Everything we're excited about, they're working with absentee landowners. They're working with recreational landowners, uh, investors. Uh, they practice holistic management. Um Gosh, what else? I mean, they're and just they've ecosystem got services. A long history uh, of working their ranch, correct? And is it a multi generational yes. outfit? So not new, not new kids on the block. As far as just stepping in with these new changes, you've seen the transition over over your career. And does multi generational mean that there's another generation up and coming transition? Oh, that's that. That's something to be determined. <laughs> Yeah. We yeah, have two daughters have, and one grandson. Depends on how appealing this podcast ends that's up right. sounding. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So, um, I mean, you guys, we talked about all these enterprises. Do you also sell direct-to-consumer beef? We do. I thought you did. Yep. I, I mean, you guys just do it all. And uh, with that, I want to start by asking just a big, broad question. What is your philosophy about ranching? Wow, that is a big, broad question. 
Um, well, thanks, Coulter, and thanks, Andy, and thanks, Michael, for, for putting us in contact. Um, but at any rate, um, philosophy about ranching. Uh, you know, we want, we want to... Uh, we want to promote life, you know, of all sorts. So I guess our mindset is, is what can we do to enhance some of our natural system? And kind of in a nutshell, might, might kind of in a real, real broad scope kind of, kind of explain that. Betsy, you might have a better, better Betsy, explanation. Let me, let me rephrase it. What is your why? I wish I had brought our mission and vision that would answer that question very well. And I don't know it off the top of my head, but. So let me interrupt. So you okay. have been through business planning programs like Ranching for Profit, where you sit yes. down and write out your mission and vision mm -hmm. statement. We have. That's one thing we, we absolutely encourage through this podcast is uh, Ranching for Profit type business planning and writing out your, uh, your vision statement and, mm -hmm. and making sure everyone's on the same team. So what is your why? We need to do that for this podcast, yes, Coulter. We do. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> do. Right. You need to go to the school. <laughs> That's right. Sure. We'll do that between these two episodes. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, I, I think in the being in the seed stock business, I think a lot of our why is to produce cattle that are low input that will keep our customers in business. Um, and by keeping them in business, keeping them on the land for for their family and for the, the health of the land and the the whole ecosystem, and of course, they have to be profitable to do that. So, that's what we want to help help our customers do that. Your customer must be a little different than the guy who shows up to a a Black Angus auction and he's excited to spend fifteen thousand on a new bull because that's that bull is going to produce him the biggest calf. Um, it's going to come out of a fourteen hundred pound cow. Tell me about how your customer might be a little different than than uh, the, the traditional guy showing up at an Angus sale. Go ahead, Rudd. Well, I, I, <clears throat> I think our customers are, are much more profit-oriented. I, I think they're, 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 uh, they're really looking at the cost side. So um, we promote low-input low genetics, um, and to us that means you look at your biggest cost first, whether that's cow depreciation or winter feeding costs or whatever that is, and, then find the animal that matches that and can do that in your environment with very little inputs. So, um, yeah, that's the biggest difference is they are thinking maybe, maybe further. They're not following the trend necessarily either. I mean, they're, they're certainly thinking out of the box, looking for alternatives that work for them. What is out of the box? Um, what's out of the box? Well, what's it look like? Is that what you mean? Absolutely. Well, from our perspective, you know, we, we, we try to do things in line with Mother Nature. So, you know, we look at calving in the time of the year when, from, from, uh, when we're not battling winter. Um, and that also changes the production cycle, matches the forage production cycle. So um, really what that takes normally is, is a Letting, the, letting, putting a lot of pressure on cattle and not giving them crutches. So then following that with a rigorous culling program and eliminating those that just don't fit the program. And that, that's, mm -hmm. that's basically, probably doesn't matter what breed or, or anything about that. It's just a matter of taking your group of cattle and, and putting them through those, through those, uh, that test and, and those that don't fit it, 
they don't fit there. So when they don't fit in the system, they need to leave, and then you need to propagate the ones that do fit in the system. So a question I have, we're just about, we're approaching halfway through our season, and it's shaping up to be a very dry, drought-ridden season. Does that... Production season, not not episodes. Right, (laughs) right. Does that in some ways offer opportunity for, for selection in terms of it's obviously a, a uniquely difficult time this this growing season for animals on the on the land. Yeah, it it, it, it is, Andy. It it's it's gonna put probably potentially cull some animals that maybe wouldn't necessarily normally be culled. But um it's also part of the natural cycle. And and we know at least five, more like seven out of ten years are going to be dry. Mm. And it might also cause you to reflect and say, well, maybe we should look at our business plan a little bit more. Maybe we should have saw this coming. Um, if we're always planning for the best year, we're bound to fail. Uh, so we should probably plan a little differently from the business side. Um, but from the livestock side, I think it is an opportunity. I think I think a lot of people have an opportunity to to look at what their cows are doing, look at how their operation is operating and re-enter the market, uh, re-enter it in a, if they choose, you know, re-enter it in a, with a little different, little different perspective and possibly using a different animal, whether it's even a cow, you know, mm-hmm. so. When, when times are good, there's not a lot of incentive to do something different. So sometimes it takes tough times like these to really analyze what you're doing and ask the whys, you know, and then, and then change from that. An old timer told me once, talking about farmers more so than ranchers, that more farmers go bust during high prices than low. They they get enthusiastic and um, go go crazy and I guess overspend. You know when when times are good. Smooth seas never made a good sailor. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, yeah, and and the tendency is to you know think that those times are never going to end. And, well, our and, farmers, especially the eternal optimists. That's, just, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a disease. Of the, it's <laughs> well, kind of an we, occupational hazard. I think it's human nature. <laughs> I, I don't see how anybody is not guilty of that. But, mm-hmm. um, well, it, Betsy, you grew up in New Jersey. Only till I was seven. Oh, okay. So, okay. So, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure glad my parents chose to move to Montana. So sure. how has it been as a team, as a family, becoming aligned in your in your vision and your interest because undoubtedly there's going to be differing opinions. And, and I would have thought maybe someone with an outsider, newer perspective is going to, is going to butt heads with the old guard, the tradition. And, and how have you guys been able to manage that as a, as a couple and a family and a business? Oh, that's tough. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I think it's an advantage not having, preconceived notions of well that's not how my dad did it because I didn't do it so um I think it's been an advantage especially for Roger that he didn't have to <laughs> deal with somebody we've talked about that with our daughters because if, if they're in a ranching family someday they haven't helped that family <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> they have their opinions for sure um but I think I think especially when we went to the ranching for profit school it helped us be on the same page to be able to sit down together and figure out, you know, our numbers, look at things economically. And, um, it really helped us to be a team, to be able to move forward from there. Um, and then also, like you mentioned, developing the mission and vision. I mean, we have that on our, on our wall in the kitchen and we see it, you know, however many times a day and it just helps you, helps you keep things in focus. 
And Roger, as you implement newer, I don't know if that, if that term has any relativity, given that some of these ranching for profit principles are 35 plus years old now, but as you implement these, you're a multi-generational farmer, rancher in Big Timber, Montana. There's some old guard around there. There's some neighbors that have an opinion looking across the fence. How do you, as the guy they knew in junior high, um, how do you manage neighborly relations and, and stick to your guns, um, your vision and your values, and, and not succumb to peer pressure? Yeah, um, you know, it's been easy for me, and I think that's the reason that's been easy for me is you know, there's several things to that, but one, and back to the question part of that, my dad was, was pretty open-minded, um, did things what he wanted to do, whether whether people thought it was popular or not, he also didn't like to spend a lot of money. So, you know, he, that kind of low input uh, mindset, came, I came by that pretty naturally. Um, um, but then um, we also, uh, we really, I don't know, we value our friendships and we value our community. And I, I think that's recognized. So, you know, I think we bridge that pretty well. And, and so we can talk to people. Um, they don't, they're not surprised that we're doing something different. I think I grew up doing things different, and and being a bit of a risk taker, um, all the way from all the way from the when I was a little kid. I'm assuming, uh, you know, where, you know, yeah, at, Roger might try it, you know, type of thing, and so you know, <laughs> let him go first. Um, and I think that's that's fine. I think that's the way it should be. There's going to be people who are going to try some things and and do some things and fail, and you know, then people can say, well, yeah, I can see that didn't work that way or I told you so but um, you know after a while and you keep going back because some of our best education has come through failure and so when when we fail and then try again and make you know correct some things or do do some tweaks or whatever it takes uh, and then make it work I think that's admired across the board you you mentioned community and in the seed stock business, aren't you kind of an outsider in that community? We would be the black sheep in the family. In, in the, <laughs> because in the seed you're, stock you're developing your bulls on grass. You are, you talked about your whole philosophy and uh, business strategy is low input. Seems to me that the seed stock business is not about low input. That is, that's 100% correct. And, you know, and, and Performance is, is good. We do want performance, but uh, we, we've really missed the, missed the mark. And uh, that worked fine when inputs were reasonably or, or cheap, I guess, in, in today's terms. But, you know, <clears throat> so we, we, measure, we measure our output per acre, um, not, not per animal unit. Um, so from that, from that perspective, it would be comparable to a corn farmer uh, measuring their production per plant, uh, you know, they'd have a few plants an acre, and and you know, it, it just so we've kind of in today's economic model, I think we've got the the wrong the wrong identifier or matrix for what we're measuring as as a success. You know, over the years of doing ranch appraisals, the outfits I've been impressed by the most, and especially when I'm looking at balance sheets and whatnot, are the low input outfits you know um that really and the margins are so tight and so low it just doesn't make sense to have high inputs and so i can't help but raise an eyebrow a little bit when i show up on a ranch and i see you know three brand new ninety thousand dollar pickups and 
you know, new shiny equipment. And it's kind of neat when you get on the place with pretty old, pretty old equipment, pretty old gear, but they're keeping it running and, and, you know, low input, right, low cost right, basis. Right. And that, and yeah, as well as, you know, there's nothing wrong with a new tractor, but you better make sure it's working and that yeah. it's doing, and it's doing what it needs to be maximizing its use. Um, those kind of things. Um, so, um, those efficiencies, um, but you know, when you look at some of the landscapes around um, larger, larger, you know, ten to twenty thousand acre properties, um, it's hard to manage them physically anyway, except low input. And so those those bigger operations, just by their nature, need to be low input. What kind of animal are you striving for? Well, phenotypically, we're we're looking for, uh, you know, something with a. When you look at them from the front or the back. The, the widest part is their is their paunch, um, and that that should be substantially beyond their hindquarters, behind their shoulders. We want early maturing, so we want bulls to, bulls to develop with a crest early in their life, and we want uh, want our heifers to start cycling early. Um, so early maturing, moderate frame, um, good hair coats, put on a lot of good winter hair. Um, and have a, a, a really strong ability to forage. Um, and they also need to have a, a strong herd instinct. So they, they learn to stay together, and, and, and that, that's kind of going down some of the ecological things and what we try to do with some of those grazing practices and things we do. But that, that's very helpful in, in, in those kind of, kind of situations. And Betsy, Roger mentioned uh, the test. Do the bulls make it through the test? Is this the Ingerland Ranch test, or is this the Midland Bull test, an actual commercial outfit? Because it seems like you guys would not be within that standard generic bull test market. That is this an Ingerland Ranch test, or? I guess it would be. We've never officially called it that. <laughs> just, just the test of time. Just surviving on our place i guess there's another enterprise for you guys another marketable (laughs) enterprise another uh, bull forage test but i think you just meant yeah just the regular just you know um growing up being raised on forage their whole life on on our place and um they're certainly not fat i mean a lot of people are really surprised when they look at them and kind of wonder but but they grow out and 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 I think by developing them slowly, they have a longer lifespan, longer, longer useful life that way also. So because there's not a third party involved there um, analyzing your bowls, seems to me like your customers put a lot of trust into the relationship they have with you and, and your reputation that they are valuing these bowls based on what they see in you two as producers. Is that, is that correct? Oh, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's just like buying anything. There, something's only as good as the people that, are, that you're buying it from. So we offer, you know, basically an unconditional guarantee if the people are dissatisfied for any reason, we're, we're going to make it right, um, even if it costs us some money. But, um, so we stand behind our cattle. Basically, it's just a guarantee that they'll make it through the first breeding season and then beyond that, if, if there's issues, we're going we're gonna to make it right. Well, there's that. And I think a lot of people look at, look at well, the pressure we put on our, on our cow herd to get through the winter. Um, and we, we go against the, uh, 
a lot of the, the common common knowledge about feeding cattle to a certain body condition for calving and all those things. Um, and so people observe that, and I think they really kind of feel that, that um, you know, if they graduate our program, um, those those cattle will do well in their places, you know, and they can be confident in that. Um, We've kind of taken away most of the most of the real crutches and try to try to mimic a, a fairly natural system. I mean, we're we're we don't use porons, we don't uh, we don't trim feed. I mean, we don't do any of those things. So, um, and we do uh, you know through that selection, we discover things like we multi sire breed and <clears throat> in pastures and then do DNA to prove parentage so we can do our registrations and everything. But uh, it's not uncommon for us to have a bull sire 50-some calves. We've had them sire over 70, almost 80 calves in, in our season. And um, that that ability to proliferate like that and, and make that bull valuable. Uh, a bull that will breed 50 cows is a lot more valuable than one that can only breed 30. Absolutely. That's, that's the one you want to be marketing on the front page. That's right. That's right. So um, I'm interested, this is the Ranch Investors podcast, um, and so we talk a lot about land values and raising land values. I'm curious on your perspective, uh, and we're in the probably the hottest market Montana's ever seen uh, right now with, with uh, our market right now. So how does that impact long-term ranch ownership? How do you guys look at the, the, the land asset and that, managing that growing value? Does that provide challenges or opportunities you know i mean for the land that we own um obviously it, it increases the value on your balance sheet you know how much good that really does you as an as ranch operation is debatable i mean obviously if you want, you might have more more uh more capital that you could borrow or something like that if you lever up to, if you want yeah if you, <laughs> depending on how, what your how you can stomach how much leverage you can stomach or whatever but so there's that does help with some opportunities that way um you know i i i think there's i think there's agriculturally we're looking at a shift and and i think there's going to be a lot more emphasis put on other values other than agricultural value on land which there already is and probably by two or three or five times yeah. Um, so we need to see where these values are coming from and then try to capitalize on those. One misperception we get a lot, and people don't realize in Montana, ag land, because uh, one of the concerns is taxes, right? Or rising property taxes as your property increases. But property taxes in Montana on ag lands are based off of uh, formulaic, off of commodity prices. So there really isn't as much pressure as some might think. Your ranch doubles or triples or what, and that doesn't necessarily mean your taxes do. Um, so as far as tax pressure, that isn't necessarily a problem. Well, in, in talking about stress intenseness, um, they, they usually yield a new creative solution to make it. If you're going to make it through the tough times, you have to be flexible and dynamic, and it's not survival of the fittest. It's survival of the most adaptable. And you guys in Sweetgrass County, Big Timber, one of the sexiest areas of Montana, Andy, you can... Tell us how much those values have jumped in a matter of 24 months. It's and it was always hot. It, it was yeah. always sexy there. You, the Enderlands have been able to respond with better seed stock, direct to consumer beef, bringing in the new agrarians. I mean, you guys have been finding a way to to squeeze out the margin and reduce your input costs so that you can stay in 
stay in the area ranching doing what you love is that is that always you kind of have you always felt that that we've just got to be doing something different to to keep up with this new trend of inflating land values that are kind of pushing us out and pushing out local ranchers farmers i really think that the people that are moving in or at least buying land it's it's a huge opportunity for for somebody who wants to make it an opportunity because depending on the goals that they have with their land purchase, you know, normally it's, they're probably not going to want to make money. That's probably not going to be their goal. It's probably going to be that they can enjoy the land, have it be beautiful. And regenerative agriculture fits right in with that. Um, you know, producing healthy food on their land and, you know, just expanding the, the ecosystem services, whether it be wildlife or, you know, good insects, I guess. Um, you know, just all those, all those things that are important to them. So, you know, they don't want it grazed into the dirt so that, you know, so they can get every dollar from a rancher, you know, to graze the cattle there. They want it to be a place they can enjoy. And so, um, you know, the different grazing type things we're doing really fits in well with the goals of those people that have that mindset. Are you tracking, are you able to track and report to your lessors, your landlords, your, your fifes? <laughs> are you able to say, you know, we've protected this uh, riparian habitat, diversity of species, whether it be animal plant species, um, you know, here's, here's what our management and our grazing practices have done for you. Theoretically, yes. Not that we're the, the best record keepers, but we, we have done soil samples on a number of our prop the properties we lease and you know the organic matter has has improved. We we should be better at that because that would be, you know, a great thing to promote for sure. Yeah, it is. But on the other hand, I mean I think a lot of that they absolutely they just see. I, um they see more deer. They see more they see more birds. Um and so I th I think it's over time, it's obvious. We have we do some transects and things like that that we monitor so that, you know, if we need to, we, we could we can get to some data, even though it's not great, but we can show that plant diversity is increasing and, and those kind of things. Um, so I, th I, think, I think we can prove that, but I think more important than that is that we need to establish those relationships and that trust kind of right up front uh, so that so that they have faith in what we're doing because um, that's a big part of what they're doing as well is they want to have that trusting relationship that they don't have to be worried about, uh, that they can have faith that it's being taken care of. Um, you know, uh, we'll, If they're going to be there and we're going to be in the way with part of our operation or something somehow, we'll gladly move cattle out of their way. It's their place. Hmm. You know, and I think that mindset of that we're, we're going to work together so the, the land market in Montana has been dominated, I think we could say, for at least 20, 30 years by outside money, outside buyers. You know, Montana's been discovered for a long, long time. And I think in the earlier days, you know, there was a reputation that a lot of those buyer sets, you know, had more money than sense. And there's all kinds of stories about, uh, you know, failed enterprises or, or ownerships that didn't last. Do you see a change, um, you know, in the in the past 30 years with, um, and then in this hot market we're in now, no exception, or maybe, maybe even more so than ever, you know, dominated by out-of-state buyers. Have you seen that 
fire set change over the decades? I don't. I'm probably not connected like you are, Andy. To, mm -hmm. But I would. I would think there is a change, and I think the. Uh, I think there's a little less, a uh, little less tendency anymore to uh, kind of look at me. Less of that attitude, and, right, and more right. of an attitude of, I want my, I want my place, and it's just for me, and and more power to them, and I want my privacy, and and all all those things. So yeah, I think a little more, a little more of that, and a little less of, of the, um, trying to really, trying to spend enough money to fit in. You know, I mean, right. and that, and that's a disaster. You yeah, know, five yeah. seven years down the road, they're they're tired of it. They they're losing losing their losing money on our operation hand over fist and yeah we can show yeah. them that no you don't have to lose money hand over fist in, in an operation we can pay you a, a market value for your grass um we can provide all these ecological services along the line doing that and it, it fits into your, your bigger picture a little bit better i think what i've seen a lot less of i think is the the guy it's usually a guy it seems like shows up and and really wants to prove he's a rancher you know really wants right. to you know like it's kind of got almost a chip on his shoulder or something to prove or it seems like the it's a little more uh like uh, you described it well you know they they have values of wanting to have a nice place and enjoy it but they don't have something to prove you know that they're that they know ranching better than locals that have been doing it their whole lives you know well and with that let's introduce our sponsor land trust did you know consumer demand for outdoor recreation is an over 17 billion dollar marketplace Savvy investors do, and they're using a secret weapon to access the demand. It's called Land Trust. Land Trust, the recreational access network, connects ranchers, farmers, and ranch investors with outdoor enthusiasts seeking private land access. This online marketplace makes it easy and safe to gain year-round income from hunting, fishing, photography, and more. You don't even have to be there. Be the wiser investor with a new secret weapon. Visit landtrust.com/ranchinvestor to learn more. That's landtrust.com slash ranch investor. Also, uh, that's what I used to call the ego ranch. When you talked about, maybe it was 30 years ago up to 20 years ago, they came out here um, with, with the ego vision that I'm going to be a land baron and I'm going to steamroll the local community and get my way and I'm going to put a big, big wooden archway on the driveway with my name <laughs> and my ornamental brand you know i'm not an actual registered livestock brand but an ornamental brand the bigger the arch the smaller the ranch <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you two have you two have i mean that's three decades you have navigated those relationships and i, I it sounds like your your leasing relationships are built around integrity that you do what you say you're going to do and not so much around data that your landlord isn't requiring metrics from you and they just want to have a feel-good knowledge around you two on their place not so much a portfolio or spreadsheet of the positive externalities or impacts you your cattle have been having is that right i think that is i i, I think that's that's fair coulter i think um, yeah, it's, I think we kind of bridge that gap between, um, uh, for them in the community that they don't know how to navigate. They don't know how to navigate our local, you know, 
our local ranching community, they just do not know how to navigate that. And I think that's, we probably do play on that. I think we, we, we do know how to navigate that. And um, I think once we uh, develop that trust and, and that, that relationship, that's a big part probably as far as zeroing in. It's, that's the first time really you brought that out, I mean, that I've really kind of thought that. So, but, but that's probably 100% right. Is it, that's a big component. Not, not a lot of contract arguments. Like you guys did not stick to the contract here. It's, it's uh, more about, is it still about the handshake or is that gone the wayside? We have a few leases that are, are written out. Some that are just verbal, um, more, probably more written, um, written contracts. And that's security for us as well as as well as them. Um, and then we've done several that are kind of on a five-year rolling lease, so that we've always got five years ahead of us. Um, so that it's just security on both parts. And we and we re, you know, we re look at it every year, see if there's anything we want to do different, or or things they want to do different. I think I think the some of the bigger things for us is one was the the our brand of beef business. I mean, a lot of people like the idea that that they would be able to get beef from us um, that spent part of its life on their on their property. I mean, that that's a, a kind of a, a cool connection for them to have, um, and that, and I think there's value that that they put value in that. Um, and the other thing that we, since we're a forage operation only, we're primarily a forage operation, not standing forage. Um, we present our, we present that we are not going to, you know, there might be years we never, never graze a property, um, you know. So it's 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 let to rest, and that's just because we need it uh, the next spring or whatever the we're stockpiling that winter feed all the time or whatever areas we're doing, but. So they just don't see that constant. Um, there's a lot of times there's not much going on in their place. Um, and when the cattle are there, they're concentrated in a small area. They're very un, un you know, they're not interrupting their their enjoyment of their of their property very much at all. And we're out there moving them and tending to them. And, and so, um, I think from their perspective, it's like, wow, this is pretty minimal minimal impact to us and why we have this property so we can enjoy it and 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 then as time has developed the ecological perspective is getting bigger and bigger um, and whether it's uh, whether it's bird habitat or uh, fawning habitat or all those kind of things taking care of riparian areas and, and those kind of things are important things it seems like the new buyer set suffers less illusions that they want to run an outfit seems like the new buyers are aware that they don't want to do the running, uh, that that's too much and, and doesn't fit what they're, so leasing out or, and, and you know, staffing up is, is uh, maybe as hard as running it themselves. <laughs> so the, the attraction of leasing out to a, a well-established, competent local operator with integrity is probably pretty appealing. I think it is. I think there's a lot of appeal in that because they just... Um, and, and I think we've all faced that. Every, every one of us has faced that dilemma of there's just not enough time in a day. And I think that's getting to be more and more pre prevalent. And so, you know, personal decision basically is like, I'm, I'm not buying this to get totally busy and totally 
totally consumed by it. Yeah. Betsy, Roger just said that you guys are a forage operation. What, what is that? Tell me about this paradigm. Because I thought you guys were a cattle operation or, or a seed stock operation or a livestock operation. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that protein is a byproduct? Or what is, what is this paradigm of that you're a forage operation and you use cattle to consume? I, tell me more about this. Well, I, I think we have to start with the grass because that's, you know, that's, along with water, of course, is our most important resource. And jump in any time, Roger, if you want to add anything. But um, I think how we manage that, and, and we use the cattle, of course, to, to harvest it, um, but we have to we have to just use the you know the the grass to everything has to be based on the grass um, and and you know consuming it and then you know the high stock density and then followed by a long period of rest is probably the most important thing um, so that we always have forage ahead of us so that we're not going you know what do we do now. Do we have to sell cattle? Um, if we can have 12 months to 18 months of standing forage ahead of us, I mean, that gives us a whole new comfort level that that we're going to be around and, you know, we'll be able to keep the cattle, um, you know, at least, at least for a while. We won't be the first ones to have to haul them to town. But, yeah, so it's all based on the grass. Would you agree with that, Raj? It, it is. Uh, you know, yes, absolutely. That's it's. Um, so we're... We're using livestock to improve the landscape. I mean, that, that's our, our, our bottom line. And, and we just went to a workshop that uh, Alan Williams spoke at a, a couple weeks ago. But um, interesting kind of thing. So and people a lot of times talk about cell grazing or <clears throat> management-intensive grazing, those kind of things. There's certainly a lot of doubters that say, well, I, I can't do that. This won't work here or whatever. But, and then the, the bottom line question is, well, does it really work? And I've struggled with how do you explain that. Um, but anyway, it was pointed out at that workshop that, that are uh, um, west of the Mississippi, uh, the average stock density is less than 100 pounds per acre. And east of the Mississippi, it's a little over 500 pounds. And so most of our stock density is going to be, you know, in the 15 to 20,000 pounds per acre. And, 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 and that's not even a high stock density by any means. And sometimes we get over 100,000 pounds per acre. We've also done some things where, where we did 250,000 pounds and, and almost uh, 500,000 pounds an acre to treat an area. And so that really, once you, once you do the multiplier of what, what 100 pounds to, to 15,000 pounds, that, that's 30 times the impact. And that, that's, that's a way to explain and, and make people see that what we're, how much different it is that you're doing, followed by obviously adequate rest. I mean, that's, that's, uh, so would you say you're 30 times better than your neighbor? <laughs> I think we're uh, no, no. But I, I think I think in the future we'll, we'll we might grow 30 times as much grass. There are 30 times the impact. That's, that's what, right. That's that's right. Put, that, put that into a relative term for me. Um, nominal numbers. We have listeners in Seattle, Minneapolis. Utah, uh, Saudi Arabia. I mean, put that into a relative term for me. Well, you know, for us, we we started. Um, we'd had hay ground on our on our property that that we had traditionally put up hay on, 
and it was wore out and we were faced with needing to renovate it one way or another um so we sell and it was producing one ton an acre uh, with only i don't know 15 percent legumes we sell grazed it for two years cut it for hay again and it was two ton an acre with probably 40 percent legumes so we doubled that production by two years of cell grazing the cost was minimal compared to what it would have cost to to you know traditionally farm it and plant a plant a, a, a grain crop or something for a couple of years and and so uh, those kind of that's kind of the examples type of things we got a weed patch or something we can we can put a four hundred thousand pounds an acre on that weed patch and and the next year um the weeds won't be there we biologically change that soil and it's no longer a habitat for the weed so so are you uh, not winter feeding very very little yeah. very little our cow herd um it, during certain storms we do <clears throat> but a lot of winters we don't on our cow herd our young cattle do get 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 fed hay uh, at least partly they get and that's weather dependent and when we do feed we typically feed a week at a time so we take out enough hay for a week and put it there they've got fed for a week yeah and just for reference for our listener base and in, in montana the cattle operation the typical cattle operation does a substantial amount of winter feeding obviously our growing season is short um, and so you've got cattle you got to keep around all winter long and the the typical traditional system has been to put up a whole bunch of hay and feed hay all winter but that is the most expensive aspect of raising cattle typically is, is that about right i think that's right i um, think that's right if if not if, if it's not um cow depreciation would be another one that's huge and it's right right close but a, a big big component of that the cow depreciation one we don't really um being in the seed stock business we want to keep cattle a long time just because we those are what are we consider our proven genetics so we do want to still be able to market bulls out of those as well as keep replacements out of them so we don't really capitalize on that cow depreciation um, that we could um, but that's just because we're seed stock i think most commercial guys would would be wise to to try to capitalize on uh, on that well we've mentioned already how drought how droughty we are this year hay is in short short supply pricing is 250 dollars a ton plus right now so a lot of people dependent on hay are going to have higher expense than ever uh low low supply so tough and I, I think people, some people are feeding now uh, in their drought. Oh, yeah, they're, they're probably supplementing right now. And if, if those guys are out there on their swather chasing... <laughs> listening quarter, to this podcast. Listening to this podcast, <laughs> chasing a quarter of a ton an acre dry land hay, and they just heard the Indrelands have 18 months of feed ahead of them. That sounds like a depressing scenario right there. Those, we, those guys are like... Oh. We need to send our love and apologies to those guys right now. Sorry sorry to be the bearers of bad news. We, and we sold our, our hanging equipment, oh, I guess it's been two or three years ago. Um, broke we, your heart, didn't just it? Said, Not really. It. Broke no. your heart. Yeah. <laughs> Did you cry? Did you cry no. when it left the ranch? No. no. I took a video and I waved goodbye. But, you know, we just... We, Don't we, let the gate hit you in the ass yeah. on the way out. <laughs> right. Right. We did do haying as an enterprise, and we put up hay for other people, and then and then we put up some hay and sold it as well. But, um, it you know, with the price of equipment and parts and, and now fuel, it just didn't make sense. So we got rid of it, and, you know, we're just trying to stockpile forage to graze it. And then, of course, we do buy the some high-protein hay as well, but... I, I just, yeah, I can't imagine looking at buying that expensive of 
sub, uh, substitute feed. I mean, supplemental feed's one thing, but substitute feed, um, that would be pretty expensive. Aren't you pretty much in the red at that point? Uh, I think so. By, de- by so. definition? I think so. It, yeah. it can't, I, and if it's anything other than a stopgap to, to get to some point, other point, yeah. I, I can't see it as being any kind of a solution. Well, on the upside, in terms of destocking, prices are, are not bad right now, correct? So that's one, one that's, upside. That's right. At least uh, operators that have to destock a bit, they're not facing a dismal market. No, no. It, it's, it's surprisingly good. Yeah. Well, let's take a minute to uh, rest our heads for all the people going broke. <laughs> let, during this let our drought. listeners uh, absorb um, everything they've just heard uh because we are going to wrap up this this one and uh going into number two with the Indrelins, Indrelin angus and big timber i have a question speaking about growing broke how do guys go wrong where the next episode i'd like you to answer where do guys go and gals Betsy, <laughs> where, where do the ranchers and ranch investors, landowners go wrong in your experience? So with that, uh, thank you for tuning into the Ranch Investor Podcast sponsored by Land Trust. Uh, I also want to get Michael in on this next one. He's, he's been sitting here in the audience kind of like this is Wheel of Fortune or something. <laughs> Come on down. <laughs> Price want, is right. I want to buy a vowel. So, yeah, we'll get Michael to, to do some interviewing, too. Uh, Land Trust partners with farmers and ranchers to capture pure profit from sportsmen seeking new experiences and places to hunt and fish. Land Trust built the platform and does the marketing. Sounds like another enterprise for the Indrelands. You maintain 100% control of access, activities, and you set the rules. There's no cost or obligation when you list and the next 10 Ranch Investor listeners who go to landtrust.com forward slash Ranch Investor are eligible for a gift worth over $2,000. Well, thank you for tuning in to our first uh, two-part series. Uh, yeah, we got more to cover, and we're in a tense time, and we have the great people from Indrelind Ranch. Indrelind Angus, Google that. They're all over. Uh, they're going to tell you how you make it through tough times. Thank you for joining us today on RanchInvestor.com podcast. We have a few things of note, uh, some housekeeping to take care of. Coulter DeVries is a licensed real estate broker in Montana and Wyoming. Andy Ron is a Montana certified general appraiser and accredited through the American Society of Farm Managers and Rural Appraisers. Denver Gilbert is a licensed real estate broker in four states. I say this because there are still 12 states that are non-disclosure, meaning we do not have the privilege of releasing private and confidential information from certain land markets. We have fiduciary and agency relationships that we take very seriously and would not seek to compromise these duties. In this podcast, we do not report information pertaining to specific clients or market participants unless it is public knowledge. Our reporting is not to be misconstrued as legal or financial advice, even though we may have opinions as to what one ought to do when it comes to ranch and land investment. Advice is only worth what you pay for it, and you are receiving this for free. So if you would like further information, please reach out to any of the hosts or guests on your own accord. We enjoy hearing your feedback, so please post in questions or comments to our Ranch Investor private group on Facebook. If you do not have Facebook, please send to comments at ranchinvestor.com. And thank you for listening.